This is the beginning of chapter 11, Garden Time. When life comes adrift, garden time can get you going again. One spring a few years ago, when I was recovering from a period of illness and intense work stress, I had my own experience of this. For the previous 13 years, I had been working as a consultant psychiatrist, running an NHS psychotherapy department. Given the severity and complexity of the patients we looked after, I was used to carrying a high level of responsibility and managing a certain amount of stress. But then the service I worked for was suddenly required to find major savings, as much as 20% over the next four years. Mental health care had always been underfunded, and it seemed so very wrong that it was being cut further. There followed a period of organisational restructuring that led to the closure of specialist teams, including the one that I ran. A number of my colleagues were made redundant, and in the months that followed, some others decided to leave. The loss of the psychotherapy team, combined with an increase in my workload, left me feeling powerless and isolated. Nevertheless, I resolved to carry on. The following year, I was stopped in my tracks by a sudden attack of inflammatory arthritis. I'd always had a strong commitment to my job, but I was off work and immobilised for long enough to realise that I could no longer ignore its effect on my health. The extent of this became clearer when I left the following summer, because no sooner had I done so than I was laid low by an attack of shingles. As that autumn progressed, I hoped for a resurgence of energy, but it did not come. The lethargy dragged on into winter and the wintry feeling dragged on into March. Usually when spring arrives, I can't wait to get out to the greenhouse. But that year was different. Even though I'd long since ordered a selection of seeds, they were all still sitting in their packets. One weekend morning, Tom suggested we sort out the greenhouse together. It was certainly in need of a clean. We set to work clearing out dead leaves, old broken pots and all the rest of the previous year's debris. Then we rearranged the plants on the staging and filled up the potting up buckets with fresh compost. Just as we were finishing off, I began rifling through my box of seed packets and for the first time I started planning what to sow. The following day, straight after breakfast, I went outside, intending to pop into the greenhouse and make a start on a few seed trays. I hadn't been out there long before I was gripped by an urgent need to get things into the ground. I worked through my feelings of tiredness as if nothing else mattered. By the end of that day, there were lettuces, rocket, carrots, spinach, beetroot, kale, coriander, parsley, basil and more all sown in seed trays or lined out in the vegetable patch. I sowed flowers too, calendula, larkspur, sweet peas and cosmos. All of these, no longer nascent in my mind, but actually in the soil, soon to grow. Through the previous months, I'd been marooned like a hapless surfer, watching the waves rolling by. But that day I caught a ride on the wave of time garden time, that is, which with its seasonal pull and energy of new growth can carry you along. Seeds have tomorrow ready built into them, 
they set off the pleasure of planning and new possibilities. They give you a toehold into the future, and it's a future you can easily imagine. You have the knowledge that whatever else happens, at least the lettuces and calendulas will grow. There may be pests and bad weather to contend with, but you can hedge your bets, and if some things fail, others will surely thrive. All the time, in all sorts of ways, we are investing in an unknown future. But when events conspire and life feels out of control, it is hard to dare to dream. The garden is a safe place to begin, and it gives you structure and discipline too, for it is not about unboundaried possibilities. There is no negotiating with the march of the seasons or the pace of the natural growth force. You cannot slow them down or speed them up. You have to submit to the rhythm of garden time, and you have to work within that frame. Oh, lovely. Absolutely. And I completely recognise so many of the things you're talking about there. But before we get into that, would you like to introduce yourself, Sue? Tell us, tell us about your book and how you came to write it and anything else you'd like to. Well, yes, I spent, um, uh, talking about time, which seems to be our theme today, I spent a long time working on this book. It took me about five years to write. And it actually started from a talk that I was asked to give for the Garden Museum for a literary festival uh, back in 2013. And that was when I realised that I wanted to, wanted to write much more about it and research um, because it's, it, it was something that had helped me it was also in my family history because my grandfather had been a prisoner of war in Turkey and I'd grown up with the story of how he had recovered following the war, having been left very traumatised and actually also very badly malnourished. Gardening really helped him recover his, his strength and his, sort of, and his mental peace, actually. And um, so, so there were all sorts of levels on which I wanted to explore the topic and I think that's what's so fascinating and so exciting about the relationship between gardening, gardens and well-being. I suppose I call it well-being and using our spaces as a way to support our mental health and improve our mental health. And this idea of garden time, the way in which it's cyclical and seasonal and the linear, linear quality that we're tempted in modern life to apply just doesn't apply in the gardening life, really, does it? That idea that we can, we can miss the moment for things. Yes, yes, I agree. I, I always find it very helpful, actually, that, you know, that there's a limit to how much you can procrastinate in a garden. So a garden can sort of pull you in you know, you realise there's a window of opportunity and if you don't do this now, you know, you won't have any garlic or you won't have whatever uh, whatever it is that you're trying to grow. So so I find that very helpful. I, I think, you know, in modern life we kind of we we have you know, we can we can do an awful lot of things almost at any time of day, uh, any sort of day of the week, um, and any month of the year. So so we sort of lose touch with certain basic realities of life and the garden brings us back to them. It brings us back to the, the natural rhythms uh, of life, which actually our bodies are subject to too. 
So, you know, in, in that sense that we are tuned into how much daylight we get, you know, how much rest and sleep we get, all these things are, are part, of, part of maintaining our health. And I think the garden is a very good, good way of sort of reconnecting with, with that. You know, you have to slow down in the garden. You can't rush the growth of the plants. So on the, on the one hand, I sort of feel I, I'm pulled into activity in the garden. But equally, it's not as if, you know, so many things today are sort of fast-tracked or, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever, you know, speed, speed it up. And actually, we, we simply can't do that with nature. And so you have to, you have to be patient. You have to work with, work with nature's time frame. You do, although this week, I well, this morning, I just noticed that the marigold seeds that I collected about, I don't know, 10 days ago, and then thought, oh, I'll sow some more marigolds about three days ago, have already come up. And I suppose the freshness of the seed and the fact that they're, the weather's warm and they're in the greenhouse has just made that happen so much quicker than I was really expecting. Yes, it's lovely when things surprise you like that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I was going to go back to the, the uh, your comment about procrastination, because I find I learn a lot about myself in the garden. And actually, it was marigolds again last year. I, I got a greenhouse two years ago, and uh, we started a veg patch. Then we'd moved, and I'd never had space before. And I'd grown all these lovely seeds, and they'd come and, you know, and transplanted them, potted them up into their nine-centimeter pots, and was looking after them, but not being quite sure what to do next, and somehow was keeping them prisoner in their pots and not putting some of them out because I hadn't quite decided how to do it and where to put them and hadn't had a veg patch before. And it was very, very noticeable how procrastinating on those really has an impact because the ones that went into the garden just thrived and those ones really never quite did in the same way. And I realised about myself that this tendency to do nothing rather than to experiment, you know, I could have put them in. It didn't really matter if I got the wrong place. So there's just so many layers, aren't there, to what we get out of being in contact with our gardens. Yes, but I think, you know, even on a different year, it might have been slightly different, Sarah, you know, because I think, I think everything, you know, there are certain, there are certain basic rules and certain kind of timeframes, but there's always an element of unpredictability too, isn't there? There is, but these poor marigolds, they were in their nine centimetre pots with their roots coming out and I was still thinking, oh, I don't know where quite to put you and just sort of not, not doing it. Um which really, actually, I've applied in life much more, which is I can always change something. If I get it wrong, I can redo it. Yes, and I think, I think that's the other thing that is very, very beneficial for us about you know, the seasonal nature of time and the cycles of time that we experience of growth and decay in the garden. Because well, I, one of the things I love is you know, if something doesn't work this year, I kind of feel... I make someone's make a note, a physical note, someone's just a mental note. But, you know, next year, next year I'm going to do it differently. So, so your failures are not quite, you know, they don't hit you quite so hard because it does give you, you know, there's that feeling of having a second chance uh, to try again. And, and also I think the wonderful thing is, is that there's always more to learn. There's always, you know, it, it's such a, a great journey 
getting to know a particular plot of land and what grows there and what doesn't. And, you know, there's an endless amount one can learn about plants at every level. So, so it's sort of, it's, it's constantly fulfilling in that way too. And are you still developing your garden? Well, I'm, we're always changing things. I mean, as you know, my husband is a, is a garden designer. And um, so he, he is certainly always changing certain parts of the garden. In the vegetable garden, which is the part that I garden, I like to, I like to do something different every year. I like to experiment. And this year, we, I've been planting, my husband actually gave me some herbs my birthday um, and they're all quite unusual oreganos and thymes and uh, there's a Sichuan pepper as well as various intriguing things so so that's that's been sort of new a new thing this year is getting them in the ground mm, lovely and do you do the rotation thing and reposition everything yes. every year yes yeah we have raised beds and we rotate them yeah yeah, because I'm interested because Charles Dowding, with his no dig approach, doesn't doesn't advocate rotating. No, he doesn't, and I think we're going to start trying some no dig in in one or two of the beds. I'm very curious about it actually, but um, but haven't yet embraced it. I went straight into no dig because I don't like digging, and I'm I don't you know I don't have a gardening husband really. I can sort of point and say, please, can you help me? But he's not got any sense of planning or thinking or in, or being inspired in the garden himself um so i'm the one who generates what's happening and so no dig was is, in, is important and actually i i really really like it <laughs> but anyway we're kind of off the off our topic a little bit in your chapter that you just you just read read from garden time you describe alnap uh, which is a what would you call it? A therapy center? Or? Yeah, it's it's a re, it's a rehabilitation garden uh, that was established about fifteen years ago in um, a university, Swedish university for agricultural sciences. So it's a very successful therapeutic garden that is within a kind of academic context, and 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 the um, researchers who who you know, work in the garden and, and study it, have published quite a lot of important papers about um, garden, gardening as therapy and uh, also how to create and how to design therapeutic gardens. So it's a very interesting place indeed. I really enjoyed, well, I visited lots of projects, the research in the book, but um, uh, Alnut was, I very much enjoyed that visit. What was so special about it, do you think? One of the things that's very striking about it, and it's one of the things that they write about, is is actually the need within a therapeutic garden to have a range of different types of space that answer to people's needs, to some extent at different stages of their trajectory of recovery. So they believe that actually having having part of the garden that is almost completely wild, doesn't need any cultivation at all, is very important. So there's somewhere where people can go and there are no jobs to do where they can just enjoy connecting with nature. And, and in some cases, actually, because many of the people who, who attend their programs have, have experienced quite a lot of past trauma or loss 
and have often been under a great deal of stress for a long time. They also encourage them to to sort of release their emotions in the sort of, you know, privately, as it were, away from people uh, amongst the trees. And and that's very important, that, that, that sort of experience of unconditional acceptance that people can feel in nature. You know, that actually plant, that plants and trees are not going to reject you or, or, you know, react to, to, to your feelings, and particularly if your feelings are quite turbulent. That can be very, um, very helpful. So, so that's one aspect of it. So part of the garden is, is sort of not a garden, really. I mean, it's within the garden. Uh, it's within the perimeters of the garden, but it's just, it's just left, as it were. And then, and then they also have other restorative spaces within the garden that are much more, much more garden-like. So, for example, there's a hammock that is strung up between two trees very close to a pond, and actually it's rather beautiful, large boulder. And there are other places where there is a swing seat, for example. There are just some little sort of nooks and crannies where people can find solitude and be amongst sort of, you know, flowers and scented, scented, scented trees and flowers. So, so, so it's, it's, it's a slightly different kind of restorative experience. On top of that, they also have vegetable beds uh, and, uh, you know, a, a large greenhouse. And, and then another, and sort of, they also encourage people to forage in the garden. So they, they have a lot of plants that, you know, aren't harvested like wild strawberries that people can help themselves to. So it's a kind of, it encourages these different levels of engagement with the garden and different kinds of therapeutic effects that can be achieved. And just to finish, actually, the other important aspect are the group areas. So there's an outdoor space where they can have, you know, a campfire and have meals together. And then there's also a kind of covered indoor kind of um, sort of, it's a, it's a greenhouse, but it's not used for the plants. And um, that's where they can also hold group meetings because the program runs throughout the year. And, and what I'm struck by is the invitation to actually go and find what is right for you at that particular moment, sort of that invitation to discover, to notice how you're feeling and what's going to be supportive and choose the boulder or the wild area or the swing seat or... Yeah, that, that's, that's, yeah that's very important. And the therapists, I think, are very tuned into that and actively help people recognize that that's what they need to do and one of one of the one of the things that they describe about the the kind of plants that they see are that many of them have become they've been striving to keep going they've been suffering from you know burnout accumulated stress for some time and many of them have been off work for for a year or more and that they've they've lost touch with their bodies. They've stopped listening to their bodies. They're not really tuning into their senses. So some of it is simply about helping people shift to a more mindful way of being, and and establishing a kind of sense of connection to life through the senses, through plants, through through the sound of the wind in the trees or the birds, you know, whatever aspect it is but um but of really reconnecting 
because they've become so so shut down. Yeah, they've overridden themselves for so long. And I really recognise that that sense of complying with what's required in order to keep doing um, to such an extent that I'll talk about, you know, from my own experience of, of, of losing contact of not noticing anymore um, what, what I actually needed and then, then getting into such a state that actually the, the parasympathetic system or the sympathetic system is so over overactive that it's impossible to get back into the parasympathetic system and calm down and so having to learn how to do that and reconnect through nature and through time and space and support yes i i think i think the other thing is that also when when we get that in a state like that it, you know it, it 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 does take time as well and i think that's that's one of the things that um that I think is very important about recognizing garden time because it's often, you know, our own recovery times can, in many ways, go along at a similar sort of pace. You know, we can't sort of our neural networks, for instance, if they if they if they if they need to regrow and you know that those kind of changes take time. It literally is growth that needs to take place within us and recovery and repair processes. These are all biological processes and uh, they're not that far removed from what we're working with in the garden. The micro... I can't remember what you called them, the wonderful... The microglia cells. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. Meta- well, I don't, it isn't a metaphor, is it? It's a real thing. Well, they're not a metaphor, but I think, I think one can, I, I think, yes, I think the metaphor is of the brain as a garden, but these cells are actually part of the immune system. They're called microglia cells, and they, um, they prune and weed our neural networks, and they remove toxins from the brain, and they, they also help fertilize the brain to so help new growth. And and they are they are known as the brain's gardeners, the brain's gardening cells. So I th- that that really does reinforce, in a way, what I'm trying to say that actually, yeah, you know, that that's a process that has to happen. They mainly work on our brains at night, actually. And and fascinatingly, the the, cell, the cells. I mean, very recent research has, has been able to observe them in action, and it, it appears that they each tend their own they each have their own patch of neural territory that they tend so so i i i I, that's a message i'm very keen to get across because so often what we what we hear today in terms of metaphors for the brain and how it functions the analogy is with the computer you know people have got used to talking about you know we're hardwired in this way or you know this is like our software or I've even heard people talk about, you know, that's like an app in your brain. And and I actually think it's profoundly unhelpful to us if we start thinking of ourselves as machines. We're so, so surrounded by machines and technology anyway. You know, in a way, getting out into nature helps us recover our own, our own naturalness. Absolutely. I actually picked out of that chapter, wrote it down, the Harold Searle's quote, Over recent decades, we've come from dwelling in another world in which the living works of nature either predominated or were near at hand to dwelling in an environment dominated by technology, which is tremendously powerful 
and yet never left bed. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing is he wrote, he wrote that, I think, 60 or 70 years ago now. In 19, it's either 1960 or 1970. He wrote it a long time ago. Uh, he was way ahead of his time, wasn't he? Yeah, he wasn't even talking about computers, was he, at that point? There was no... The computers came in in, what, in the 80s, 90s? Mm. But you know, I mean, he he also he was he was he was ahead of his time in in many other ways as well. I think he, you know, at a time when he was a psychiatrist as well as a psychoanalyst, and and when most well most health professionals really were not really recognizing the importance of our our connections with the natural world. He did, and he noticed how many patients in the um, in the psychiatric unit where he worked particularly when they first came in and, and they really were so overwhelmed and disturbed and, and caught up in their own minds that you know, relating to people was, was very, very difficult. But the first level, the first thing they could relate to was often a tree or sometimes you know, a, 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 you know, a stone, a large stone in, a, in, in, the, in the grounds or something like that. So, so the as different aspects of nature, they give us a way of relating to life, but they, they make fewer demands on us than, than, than our human relationships do. And he recognised that that can be a very important route to recovery from all sorts of kinds of illness. Uh, and I think, you know, that includes uh, physical illness as well. Many, many hospital patients uh, find enormous benefit from having a tree outside their window. Or having a plant, having a plant in their room, you know, and, and studies have shown that they need less pain relief and they're much less stressed and anxious. Well, it makes sense. It makes sense, but there is a, there's a kind of companionship that we can feel from the presence of plants and trees, which, which is, is, can be restorative. Absolutely. I completely experienced this in my own life. And uh, I found your book very moving and I... I really appreciate you talking to me about it. So thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah. No, I'm, I'm, thr- I'm thrilled to have a chance to, to talk about it.